0: Vector Podcast, episode three. And today we have Philip Holtmeyer, data engineer at Zillitz, um, who works a lot with users. Um, and um, the company is building uh, the vector search database called Melbus. Hey, Philip.
1: Hi, nice to meet you. Um, yeah. yeah, you got it. Data engineer at Zillitz, pretty much me.
0: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Nice to meet you as well, and thanks for joining the, the show. And uh, yeah, as, as usual, I would like to start with you introducing yourself to our audience. You know, What's your background and how you ended up working for Zillis?
1: Sounds good. Yeah, so uh, you got my name already, Philip Altmaier. Um, I graduated from UC Santa Cruz with a BS in computer science in 2020, so right start and during COVID. And then out of college, I really wanted to kind of get into the startup scene. And I was doing a lot of things, machine learning, taking a lot of classes, doing projects. And when I was going to look for a job, I realized anything machine learning related, you have to have a PhD, you have to be doing master's PhD, extra work, like you're not getting out of, you're not getting into the field out of college. So um, the next step was like, okay, what's kind of new and growing in that field, somewhere where there isn't already so much this set knowledge. And that's where uh, vector search came in, and then Zillas, I found them and did the whole process, and I really thought I fit fit in, and uh, that's where that took off. So that's how kind of how I got to where I am right now. But um, pretty much yeah, fresh out of college, getting in the whole field and figuring everything out and how it all works.
0: Oh yeah, that's cool. And and can can you tell me a bit more? You know, like I've been also doing some tech stuff for a few years here and there, but like data engineer and you work with users, you know, how exactly that looks like?
1: Yeah, so data engineer gets thrown around a lot at a lot of companies. Um, right now, so for me, how it works for me, um, data engineer falls into kind of just user success and more also pre-sales style of things. So how to use our tech, uh, creating new use cases, like we have a boot camp where we show examples of how to use Milvis. That's kind of what we're doing. We're talking to the customers that are trying to learn how they can implement in their system, what problems they're having. So we're the ones that are kind of front facing in the company. And then as a data engineer, I've also worked with a lot on the cloud deployment, uh, figuring that, optimizing that, um, worked on some development aspects as well, but it's kind of a lot of hats. So it's like startup data engineer, at least here, it's pretty much just whatever needs help with or whatever needs work. Um, you kind of get put on that. So it's. It's a cool opportunity. You get to try a lot of it and um, get to meet a lot of cool customers and cool people in all different parts of the field.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and like you also learn to interact with 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 users because they bring a different perspective over things, right? Like they probably don't focus as much on the nitty-gritty, but they need to to, to solve something, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely that so it's figuring out like seeing their use cases is always crazy like you see how much data they're dealing with these cool ideas of what they're trying to do and seeing like how we can make it work and um usually it all goes well like we can figure out solutions we work together we kind of keep relationships i think it's really cool and um sometimes it doesn't work sometimes we need to put more things into Milvis. so we kind of keep the communication line open and uh we kind of figure out more things to put in kind of get their input on what we're working on and go from there but it's a lot of uh back and forth conversation with users and customers.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like, first you need to learn what is it that they're trying to do, right? And uh, yeah. before like you suggest any solution because it takes a lot of time. Did you, do you feel the same way when you when you talk to them? Like instead of kind of jumping in and like solving, you, you kind of try to figure it out or you do something else. You, do, you have a different approach.
1: So I think I go the way of like, yeah, kind of get all the info first because everyone's use case is different. None of them are ever the same. Um, and then kind of come back to the team, kind of discuss it, see, do we have anyone else that's been doing it sort of similar? Do we have a solution? Because sometimes we've had to do hacky solutions with like our previous version. There were things that just weren't up to par and we couldn't really change it that much because it was like kind of on an old style of doing it and it didn't work. So you'd kind of do some hacky solution for them, some way to trick it into working. Yeah, it would work in production. But um, then we take notes of that and kind of later on, put it into like, so like when we're working on a new version, okay, we got to think about this. We got to improve on this. And um, yeah, but it all starts with kind of figuring out what they're doing, getting the whole picture. Sometimes like there's always conversations where they can't really say everything. Cause a lot of these places that are, these companies are, there's a reason that they're like, they're, they got to be secretive because it's a new field and they might have a really good new idea, but uh, it's kind of like extracting as much as we can without like crossing those bounds, getting that info. They're not allowed to tell and seeing if we can help them with that, what we got but it's like a big team effort. It's not just me. So it's, I talk to them, bring it back and then we all work together to solve it.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, And are are your users kind of aware of that you are helping them with vector search? Do they even care?
1: So it's 50, maybe not 50, like I would say 70% of the people we talk to are aware from it. They come to us with help. So they know what they're kind of getting into. And they know what they need vector search for and they know like what they're doing and why they're doing it but sometimes we also get people that are hey like i want to find similar images and there it's like we have like the simple like tutorials that kind of deal with it but they want to know more about it so there is some explaining explaining of what vector search is what vectors are sometimes that some like it's understandable like not everyone goes studies machine learning and knows what like vectors are math as well but um i would say 70 percent of the time they get it and they know what they're getting into but 30% Thirty percent of the time it's also just like a whole new world and they don't really like we explain it but it's not like a you can't explain it all in one day there's a lot of stuff that goes behind it sure you might touch on vectors one day but then you have to get into the algorithms the next day and then it's sort of like keeping that relationship then answering questions whenever they come up oh yeah oh yeah
0: for sure and are you using like most of the time you're using milbus right like as part of your user engagement. Or do you like how, how does it look like? So you bring the database and you say you know it can solve a bunch of different use cases, but you know, we also need to vectorize your data, or maybe they bring the vectors. How does it look like? So they
1: they usually bring the vectors themselves. Um, what we're currently gone working on as well is we're building something a little bit above Melvis for actually getting the vectors, but that's still in a work in progress and it should be releasing soon. But uh for now it's always we have like our examples, we have a boot camp where we we pull like the basic, like the basic pipeline. It's always around Milvus, but for like images, we have a ResNet 50 and we kind of show them how it goes in that process. So that's for the 30%, we kind of go over like one pipeline. It's like a small file because it's just three steps, encode it, embed it, and then search, or encode it, insert it, and then search it. But um, yeah, so most of the time they already have their embeddings though, with those bigger companies who who know what Vector Search is, who knows what they're getting into. They already have their 512 dimensions 10 million vectors they know what they're getting into so they just want to see okay how many how fast can you do it uh, what are the bottlenecks where can we like what do we need to scale out if we're going to scale so it's like again 70 30 the 30 percent usually you need to go over the actual embeddings as well so just like a quick neural net lesson
0: yeah yeah uh, maybe like it's in their culture in the company to kind of like dive deeper into what they are doing right uh yeah maybe they they think that they can kind of take it over and then kind of run with it as as they it, right but then you said 70 70 percent are kind of like you know here is my problem can you solve it is that yeah exactly
1: like does this work like can milvis handle this and that's how usually like 70 percent again but they have their own neural nets. Sometimes they don't want to tell us like what neural nets they're using or how that what exactly their data is, but they give us okay, this many dimensions, this many vectors, and this many read requests, write requests. Will it work? Mm-hmm. And then we kind of go from there and see if we can solve it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds cool. Um, and can you can you actually tell me what what is vector search and what is Milvus?
1: Okay. Sure. So uh, yeah, vector search. Um, Pretty much a way to search vectors. Um, Should I go over vectors as well? Yeah, I'll go over. So um, numbers and vectors. You have numbers, easily comparable. You can store them in relational databases. They have like the greater than, equal to, less than. So to actually index these and search quickly through them, you can do things like B-trees, which is a very efficient and very fast way of searching for a value. Vectors, on the other hand, you don't really have this um, kind of like comparison, direct comparison. You have similarity metrics, which is a math equation where you kind of find out how far they diverge. But it doesn't tell you, okay, this element's diverging this much. It's like a lump sum for every value in the vector combined. This is how different the entire thing is. And that makes indexing a little bit more difficult because you kind of start relying on more um, approximate algorithms. So this is what approximate nearest neighbor search, which is pretty much all of vector search. It's this library of um, algorithms. And there you can do clustering and then you can do graph-based, tree-based. So the big big names are right now for uh, inverted file, we have face, Um, that's the library for, it's clustering based on centroids. And then you store values in the inverted file and you search through that. There's tree-based, which is Spotify's annoy, what they're using for their music recommendations. And that's just building trees and splitting uh, all your data by hyperplanes and then going left or right. And then we have graph-based, which is HNSW, I think is the biggest one right now. And they're doing, um, pretty much graph start with a very sparse, a very like empty graph on the top layer. And then you find the closest to one point, let's say, and then you drop down a level where it gets more dense and you keep dropping and dropping. And then there's a locality, locality-based sensitive hashing, which, uh, instead of with normal hash. Uh, algorithms, you avoid collisions. With locality-sensitive hashing, you try to get collisions. If you get collisions, that means that they're close together. And then one thing I kind of forgot to go over is like the data types that this brings. So there is structured data, which is those numbers, strings, those things that can be easily compared to, and then there's unstructured data. And this is pretty much these images, videos, medical data, things that computers can't easily understand. And then with unstructured data, you throw them through a neural net and you get those vectors that we previously talked about. And then relational data, or with a structured data, you can just take the data itself because it can be easily compared. It's already known to a computer, it can understand them. And then there's in-betweens, which is uh, semi-structured. Semi-structured is things like emails where you have structure to it. Like you have the body, the header, the, the sending address. Those are all like, every email has that, but the data inside is unstructured. This is kind of where you use a mix of both. But yeah, vector search um, gets a little complicated, but main way to think about it, you have unstructured data, your computer does not understand whatsoever. You can have two images a pixel apart and half the time, if your algorithm's not good, your computer will think there are two exactly different pictures. It won't get it. So you take that unstructured data, you throw it through a neural net, you get vectors. And with vectors you use those previous algorithms to find things that are similar and that's how you can quickly search through it.
0: Right, right. And I mean, so you mentioned these several algorithms there, which is, I, I agree, I agree. I've read these papers as well. So this is cool. But like, just uh, to satisfy my curiosity, where would you put the product quantization methods, you know, which is also implemented in FISE and maybe some, somewhere else too. But like, is this like a fundamentally different approach compared to LSH graph uh, trees? Uh, or is this, is this something else in your, in your
1: book? So with face with this quantization, I think I just find that to be part of the graph based. Um, I looked a bit into it. This kind of went a little deeper because I didn't really work on that much, but I did uh, look into it. But it's pretty much just simplifying it for clustering is the way I saw it, where I would classify that for clustering. You kind of want to, you need something to kind of simplify and speed it up. So that's where in face you have the quantized base. You have the flats, which aren't. You have the SQH, which is quantize based, and there's a few more i forgot the names but it's just a way of speeding up that already used one i'm not sure how well it will work with other um algorithms so like using that quantization and then trying it on annoy you quantize everything and then you start doing the splits it might speed things up but um yeah it's a little bit outside of where i see like what i know but i
0: sure if it works
1: with the face i believe it could work with the other locations it's just I don't think it's been tested
0: yeah. yet. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I mean, there are a number of um, approaches where they combine things. Like if you take the paper on disk NN from Microsoft, from I think mm-hmm. Bing team, you know, they combined uh, HNSW with uh, product quantization and they also have clustering. So it's kind of a three-phase algorithm. They first yeah. uh, cluster the points, they get the centroids, then they uh, kind of, Quantize them, I guess, kind of lose some precision on the vectors, yeah, so that you can actually load them in memory, and and then like from there, uh, they they build the um, so for the clusters they build the HNSW the graph uh, kind of layout right for each mm-hmm. kind of like shard you could say for cluster, yeah. and then they basically kind of it's a it's a it's a few step kind of approach so your query comes in. It basically goes through kind of this quantization. You find the closest, um, you know, centroids, and then you go and kind of search in them, and then you re-rank the results based on the disk. So from disk, you read the non-quantized versions of vectors, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can actually give, uh, get the precision. Uh, so I mean, what I'm trying to say basically is is to that you can combine this algo in some yeah. ways and uh, yeah. You know, Depending on your use case, basically, like if you try to optimize for memory or speed or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, and um, so, if we go back to before we go into Milbos, like if we go back to use cases, you mentioned there are like a number of things. Let's say you can encode almost any object, and you gave an example, really good one about email, right? So, email mm-hmm. on one hand, everyone knows what it is. On the other hand, it has unstructured. Kind of parts to it, and if you compare text, let's say versus audio or video, do you think that you can equally apply vector search? Of course, you can, but I'm 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 asking in terms of quality that you will get, or do you need to go like extra mile, you know, in audio, extra mile in video compared to text? Because for text, there are so many models.
1: Honestly, that's a good question. I think that's where the neural nets come in and that's where they're important how they kind of the black box doesn't how it kind of sorts everything out but i believe in text i feel like first of all, i feel like there's been a lot more work and a lot more kind of people have been looking into that and for now everyone's kind of switching to that for product recommendation there's a lot more money in that area so i think there are a lot more advances in those neural nets but i think the underlying to text the way i personally see it this isn't like scientifically factor is i feel like there's a lot more underlying in language i feel like there's a lot more rules underlying connections that i would think a neural net would find compared to an image and then with those underlying values and a uh, kind of the underlying language you'll have an easier time kind of grouping things together with the neural net and then if you can easily more easily group things together the more easily you can uh, search it pretty much you can make these Clusters a lot more accurate. If things are gonna already be near each other, then it's easier to find. With images on the other hand, I feel like there's not as much of a background connection in everything. Again, all personal take, but I feel like sure an image might have the same object, but there's no like real underlying thing linking those objects. Yeah, there's the shape, but in languages you have a lot more than just the shape of an object. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I think text does have a better time but in reality, the way, I, like I want when we look at our systems and everything, like when we try it, like it always ends up being very close to each other, maybe like I, up until now, it's already approximate. So no one's really been hurt that much by half a percent of accuracy up until like it's, everyone understands it's still kind of a new field. It's kind of growing in that these methods are all approximate. Like you're never going to get a perfect end. It's really up to testing with the your neural net to see which embeddings and optimizing your neural net. And then throwing because these algorithms aren't. It's like for uh for the approximate nearest neighbor, these algorithms aren't really learning. Sure, there is some learning with the quantization based ones, where it is kind of making its own quantization. Um, I, I know for face it does it, but um, again, it's like it's like a it's an algorithm that kind of goes step by step, and there's not too much randomness. Sure, Spotify does random splits, and they're annoyed, but um, yeah. So you kind of have to optimize your neural net to really get. The best performance, but there are some values that you can mess around with with uh, the actual uh, approximate nearest neighbor search, but those don't play as big of a deal, I believe, as what you're doing with your neural net.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so if I if I actually take a step back a little bit, you know, can you tell me and our listeners why we cannot do exact KNN? exact k-nearest neighbors? Why do we need to do approximate? What what stops us from doing exact?
1: So with exact, um, okay. so first you can get exact. But that's just going to be brute force. Every All of these libraries, uh, maybe not all of them, but most of them do have a brute force search. And then you haven't solved anything. Then you can just use a relational database, throw in your numbers, and go by each column, look through each one, see which one's closest. yeah, so you get approximate, that's where you get your speed up. And then with approximate, because you're doing clustering, you assume most things are going to be embedded. Your neural nets, like if you have a neural net, your embedding layer, your vector is probably like, you hope that it's going to find similarities. Like you're, if you have two items that are very similar, your hope that their distance is not going to be far. This isn't always the case. A neural net, if you have a photo of a car and a photo of a car with a bike in the background, it might for some reason focus on the bike. Again, we don't really know what's going on. There's research into seeing what's actually going on behind the scenes in the box. But yeah, these two might pop out with two completely different values. They might be in completely different clusters even though they kind of should be similar. So that's where this, it can kind of go wrong. And then, so yeah, you search the wrong cluster and then you'll miss that even though that was supposed to be a good choice. But then there's also the aspect of you're not searching through everything. You want to speed things up. You search through the top 10 matches uh, let's say for inverted file list, which is centroid based, the clustering, you look at the top 10 centroids. If you look at the top 10 centroids and you find those files in there, yeah, they're going to be similar, but there might be the 11th centroid, might be a very similar one, like off by just a tiny bit less. And then inside it, it might have the perfect answer. So there is like all of this approximation where you only look at top X numbers and then also combined with you only look at, you only make so many clusters, you make X clusters there's always going to be outliers out of bounds. So that's where you kind of get that loss. Because for the similarity search in this, leading on this like, will similarity search take over everything? It won't really because um, sometimes you need perfect results and similarity search is kind of useless there. It's, It's going to end up being brute force. And then with brute force, any algorithm really works. You're going to be looking through every single value.
0: Yeah, so it's like complexity-wise, it becomes like big O of n, where n could could be like one
1: billion, right? And yeah, you're... when you're in one billion, is it... Yeah, it's no, like there's two... no no problem solved anymore if you look through everything. Like it's <laughs> yeah, big. yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. That's why you need to go approximate, but it's not like approximate to the level of losing like tens of percents in in uh, precision. Yeah, it's
1: usually, I would say, it's usually like around three, two to three percent. If you're doing like a very reasonable like speed versus uh, recall, um, you balance it out of it. That's where you can change the values in the actual algorithm. But if you keep it kind of balanced, usually 97% is the average of mostly what I've been seeing. So it's pretty strong. And this is like where, yeah, it's approximate. When you're dealing with billions of data, you don't really, like, yeah, finding the exact for some use, use cases is very useful, but usually in the billion scale data range, you're okay with just getting a few that are very close
0: yeah yeah and I mean've i um, so when I published a blog post about like all the vector databases, I will make sure to link it in the notes. Um, and, and Milbus was there as well. You know, in mm-hmm. Hacker News, somebody said that they have been actually using NoSQL database for genome related project. And so what what the guy said that he did is that he actually comp- pre-computed the nearest neighbors for each individual entry. And then he stored it as as individual items in the NoSQL database. And so as query ca- came in, he basically kind of went and kind of asked for each item. Okay, what's your neighbors? Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And 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 then he said on, on, on small scale, this worked fine, but he wouldn't necessarily use this on the kind of next level, right? Yeah. And so can you tell me more like how Milbus is done? What is what is it as a product, let's say. Uh, and, and what's included inside? What can I get as a user?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, Melvis, we kind of built it as a database first, similarity search second, where everyone's collecting a bunch of data, a bunch of vectors. Everyone's hoarding all their data and they have, they're making their neural nets, they're all getting embeddings, but then like what's next, you need to do something with that data. So that's where again similarity search. But yeah. What we're doing is building up a database system. So Right now with version 2.0 we're really working on making a cloud uh, native something scalable something fast and something easy to use so we you can think of it pretty much as a mysql database and just for vectors and then in that regard you have the crud operations you have sharding you have all of this all these operations and we're kind of building up that for vectors themselves and then later on we're gonna be building up other parts that branch off to kind of make those vectors. So we're kind of, it's this core to our entire pipeline for dealing with similarity search. And yeah, that's kind of what it is uh, in terms of like the actions you can do with it. You can do storing, you can updating, as I said, partitioning, sharding. We're adding scalar filtering in right now it's with ints, but I think this month, so in the next, week, I believe we're going to be having strings for, uh, scalar filtering. What scalar filtering is, is being able to filter results in a fast way. So instead of searching through everything and then filtering out these certain things, you kind of apply the filter first or apply the filter during the search to speed everything up and also get more accurate results. So with, let's say you have a vector and then there's a filter that says glasses equal true, you can look for every single vector that has glasses equal true. And that's very useful and something that everyone's been looking for. But yeah, it's a database first. And then for the actual searching, uh, we employ all these libraries that we previously mentioned, uh, annoy, phase, HNSW, all these guys uh, to build these indexes. And then you can select whichever one you want. You can use multiple. Sometimes some will work better for images, or if your neural net's working in some way, it might work better with this one, so you can store multiple of these indexes, decide, test pretty easily, and mess around with it. And once you're done, you select what you want and you call it a day. You search and you get results.
0: Yeah, actually, when I was watching uh, one presentation by your colleagues at Haystack, we will mm-hmm. make sure to link this as well. Like this caught my eye. Besides, you know the horizontal scaling that other databases as well have. Um, well, maybe not all of them, but some, most of them. But, um, you know, what, one thing that caught my eye was that I can index, as you said, the data using different uh, index layouts, essentially different mm-hmm. algorithms that you alluded to earlier. And then I can somehow test and kind of figure out which one works better. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So we do have benchmarking algorithms, but you can also benchmark yourself as well. You, but the way is you can build up all, so every single index has its own parameters. And you can just constantly build up more. You can like build up 10 of the parameters change this way or 10 of just completely different indexes. Perform a search with the same vector for each index. Because when you search, you can select which index you want to use. So you can just take that search, throw it in through every single index, see the results. And then if you have a baseline data where you already have it labeled and you have, you know what results you should be getting from a brute force. So when you, when we do these benchmarks it's always compared to brute force because brute force will give you the exact answers. And from there, you can kind of see, okay, how many hits did I get? How many did I miss? And see what your recall rate is. And then you can also time these things as well, because um, some parameters, if you make 10,000 clusters within your data, that's going to take a bit to search, if you want to search through every single one. So um, you time it, and then you can kind of get this ratio of speed to performance. Or we we usually say like speed to recall. But uh, yeah, so you can build up all of them, then go from there, Kind of, if one doesn't work, you can just delete it. It'll do it in the background, build a new one. You can be doing these searches and everything in the concurrently uh, because uh, vector, uh, the indexes can be built at the same time as you're searching and doing all these other things. Cause we have workers for queries, for building indexes and for inserting data. So it's all kind of in the background and kind of gets dealt for you.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And I mean, so you mentioned the technical part, you know, like different products, they they might have some SLA, let's say, you know, how quick it is query per second, P99, whatever. But like, Mm -hmm. what about the semantic part? Like you mentioned that there is like a ground truth that you can compare to always, right? But like, what about the other kind of side of things? Let's say for people who are like, let's say, product managers, uh, they're not very technical. They will not look into these metrics, but they still would like to get a way of understanding, you know, what's the kind of impact on the semantic uh, part of things, right? For instance, you are comparing, you know, inverted index versus vector search,
1: right? Mm-hmm. So with the semantic part, we don't really deal with that as much because. We're, we're assuming that your semantics are done, done well by the, um, by the neural net. Because this is where it kind of goes, you compare everything to brute force. If your brute force shows that this is the correct response or this, like, or this wording or this wording or this wording or the top three results, those are mathematically the closest, most similar to your input. So that's where you kind of compare to that. If those aren't close, that means that there's an error a step above because your neural net is not finding the connections correctly. So that's kind of how we compare to the, the base, which is just the flat index of brute force. And we kind of pull out, then we see if you're hitting the right responses. Like if that's sort of what we we, we deal with, not the actual, because the semantics come from the neural net. And to find that issue is more above us, like in the whole stack, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so basically what you're saying is that You know, if I take um if I fix the model, right? So the model is fixed, um, and I pick, let's say, different algorithms for indexing, as Mm -hmm. well as let's say different even distances, right? In some cases, I can maybe choose different distances, right? Although Mm -hmm. maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong here, because if I trained the model for a specific distance, maybe I cannot easily pick
1: another distance during test. Is that right? So a distance. What do you mean by selecting a distance? Because it's all based on closest. Like we will rank it closest to furthest. um, And then it's only like top end results.
0: Yeah. I guess what I meant is the distance metric itself. So it could be L2, Hamming, you know. L1, yeah, yeah, all those.
1: Yeah. 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 So yeah, comparing across different distance metrics, um, that one is kind of you have to look at your data. We don't have, because yeah, if you use different distance metrics, then your flat line is going to be different. But um, yeah, that's one where if you're going to compare across indexes, you have to keep them the same distance metric. Um, Swapping them out will make some big changes, I think. Because if you go from L1 to L2, or maybe not L1 to L2, there is from cosine to Euclidean, it switches things up a bit where in some cases, one of the distances might, a higher value is better. In some cases, the lower value is better. So there's no real direct comparison. They're still going to usually rank in the same order, but yeah, for figuring out which one you want to use there, it's kind of give or take, and you have to actually have to look at the results for that one. Yeah. Um, there's no real like mathematical way to kind of compare semantics to distance and kind of get the relationship, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's more like an experimentation needed there, right? Yeah. And exactly. and, and also, like, actually, I just remembered when you've been kind of describing these different uh, distance metrics. I remembered a paper. I think it's called BEER. So um, it, was, it was comparing um, different methods to do the re-ranking step, right? Like dense retrieval and some other methods I forgot already. But they actually found out that, if you have documents, let's say text documents, mm-hmm. um, the cosine similarity will favor shorter documents given the tie, uh, versus dot product will favor longer documents. And this is by design of the formula. The cosine mm-hmm. similarity is basically mapping it to the unit sphere. The dot product is there is nothing to kind of normalize on. So it basically just takes all the all the components of your vector and just basically says, okay, here is the volume and just the longest yeah. one wins, right? Exactly. So, and, and that can actually impact the user experience, right? Like if I have a database, let's say, of news versus some um, deep research, right? So deep research is thousands of pages and news is a couple of pages, maybe even just a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Now, if, if my hits are just in a paragraph in the news and also in a pra- paragraph in the longer document, with cosine, I'll get the news. I will not get the deep research, right? You yeah. see what I'm saying?
1: No, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's, I think, one where you you have to kind of test it out and see what you want. Because uh, some people searching, they might want news. Some people searching, they might want the uh, scientific paper. And that's one where you look at history, I guess. If we're thinking about this, let's say Google's doing it. You look at the user's history of how they search, if they're searching for scientific stuff, or if they're always looking that, you can maybe swap the index to a different distance metrics but yeah i haven't thought of that too much in that way that's really interesting Oh yeah i need to check out that paper
0: yeah for um, sure i'll i'll send you the link and i'll make sure to to also include in the notes uh, maybe for those of us who are interested in reading papers and um yeah so that's awesome so you guys basically offer a database where users can mix and match the way they want right um and and then you help them to kind of Do you guide the users in the process of doing this?
1: So if they come to us for help, we usually kind of, we have some articles where we mess around with the indexes and different parameters. And we kind of have like a graph, let's say speed performance, recall, that kind of stuff where it's kind of preliminarily, we kind of hope that they kind of learn it on their own because like we can only help so many people. Um, So yeah, we do help out. We point to the right directions. And if it's like a really interesting use case or a really big use case, we'll kind of mess around with it ourselves and try to help out. But um, we also just hope that people mess around and then post their results. If they see that, and then like we kind of, the more data we get, the more like it helps a lot with when people um, kind of share what they're doing. Like we're trying to share as much as everything, kind of get people into this, get the word spread. And that's pretty much open source. Like the big deal of open source is kind of getting this out there. Like competition's good, new innovation's good. Just get this like vector similarity search, get it hitting, get people interested in it. Yeah, but,
0: um, yeah, and yeah. and your your website has so many use cases covered. Like, I was looking at audio search. Um, that was interesting. Like, you basically walk through, you know, selecting a library, how I will encode the um, the song, and I have a, an idea to try it out on a, on a few songs that I have, like MP3s. Yeah, and and, and what I what I was particularly interested in is like, okay is there a way to separate like the singer voice from the musical instrument from like, I, I don't know, the style of this song and so on? Yeah.
1: So uh, this is a really cool one. Cause this is one of the things I kind of looked into a lot and did some talks on not like really detailed, but um, it always popped up. But so for all these like recommendation systems, like let's, I, th- I think I've never looked at like their deep, everything's behind closed doors, but um, it's like Spotify's recommendation. And then when you're doing like the Shazam, I think it was Shazam for the audio uh, recognizing is, yeah, they separate the background music and the vocals and they pretty much discard vocals. Most music uh, searching is based just in the background. And there were some techniques. So I think there are, for separating the audio, there is like 1D uh, neural nets that kind of go in the line and there's like time series based neural nets. But another one that like, was audio inversion. So it would help when you had, the background where you'd invert it or where you had the vocals to get the audio out. But a lot of it was working on that of pulling out the background music is the big step and then performing the neural net on that to get the embedding. So that's how you avoid, if you're recommending songs, you would cover songs and you kind of avoid, or you can easily filter out cover songs because they're gonna have the exact same background. The vocals will be different. And then with these uh, recommendation system, another cool thing is you don't want the perfect similarity. like. With your result search result, you don't want the exact same search. It's like, you don't want the top 10 closest. You might want like the last 10 out of a hundred that are close because you want something similar, but not really exactly the same, but yeah, audio inversion and 1D neural nets and a few others. I don't remember that on the top of my head, but it's a hard problem to solve of, uh, getting the vocals out
0: Yeah, without
1: and- having like separated files already. And it's like an exciting
0: topic because like, you know, like uh, there are so many examples on the web, how you can index text, you know, yep. how you can not index text and do something else with text and more text. Right. But it's yeah. really like infrequent that I come across some image search or audio or even for that matter, video, you know, <laughs> I haven't seen any blog posts on the video. I don't know if you guys have it.
1: So video. Yeah, that's that one gets a little difficult in terms of like video you can but also how you're going to sort everything out because when you're doing dealing with videos everything is frame by frame so then it's how to do you take every frame and sort of group it together into one sort of like id and then if any frame matches you kind of point to that it gets a little difficult with video um it's not too bad if you're doing let's say live tracking in a video like let's say there's a soccer player and you pull out the most similar player that looks like him, you can get a name for him to track him. So it knows which name. That's kind of similar if you're doing live tracking, but if you're looking for things within a video, like you look for a single person, an entire video, then it kind of gets difficult of, it takes time. You either go through all of it, you index all of them, or you'd pull out a few key frames, but uh, not too many people, I'm gonna be honest, are doing video yet. I think there is a little bit of lack. Right now, to be honest, I think images are the most used for us. Like everyone, because images, I think, is the easiest, even compared to text. Because the text you have some of these neural networks where like the transformer networks, they're a little bit hard to use. Um, you always have like kind of, yeah, you have like in Python, you have sentence transform, the easiest one where you just input the string, but the other ones kind of require you to add tags in the string and do these things which not everyone understands. With images, it's just import some ResNet 50, which Torch makes really simple. Load the image, put the image in the the ResNet and then literally you get your embedding vector you can directly pipe it. So it's like, it's a very simple one and it gets good results that are pretty interesting and you can do a lot with images. And I don't think enough people are doing it yet for like uh, shopping things. Everyone's still relying on text but let's say you upload an image of a shoe, you find that shoe. I think everyone will enjoy that a lot more.
0: Yeah, so it has, like, very concrete application in, in, in business, right? And e-commerce yeah. is a very big area. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that that makes total sense. It's not like many users are like, oh, I remember that scene in the movie. Can I find it expressing it in words? <laughs> yeah, it,
1: it won't work. <laughs> Maybe you can, like, say the actor and then, like, some description of the scene, but then you already have to know the actor, which, yeah. yeah. personally, yeah. I don't know any actor names, so... Yeah, exactly. That oh, one doesn't work and, for me. And it,
0: and it defeats the purpose of search, right? Because actually, like, uh, early on, when I was kind of just entering this field many years ago, I was like, so search, it's like, I need to know what to look for, right? So I, I'm typing the keywords, telling the search engine what I'm looking for, but I don't know yeah, what so I'm
1: looking for. Yeah, so it's like you're already g- doing the g- job g- like, for it. Yeah. Yeah, like, if you're searching for the keywords, that means you're like, do you really need the search engine anymore if you, like, you're doing all of this job? Pretty yeah. Much.
0: And I really loved one competition that Yandex did. Uh like they actually stopped doing it. And and, and it's a pity. So the, the competition was like this: they give you a question, and, and basically you compete with other people. All right. Mm-hmm. So they give you a question, but it's not like what is the color of submarine in the in uh-huh. the Song of Beatles, right? It's yeah. like you first need to answer the first part of the question, then you get like kind of Another puzzle, another question. Kind of, uh, you know, the puzzle gets solved, and you get the full question, and so on. And like, it's multi-layered process. So basically, yeah. they're telling you that a cool search engine would be doing that. So you could ask like a very convoluted question, and it would kind of figure everything out.
1: I feel like you might know more. But isn't there the the aspect of? I remember taking an NLP class. It was always you could only get to two degrees, or was it like? The third degree would always like if you have a question and then like based on that answer, you have another like part of like the next part of the question is based on the first one. I think they were only being able to do the second degree, like a question after the question, if that makes sense, like yeah. getting that third part, yeah. it would always fail like it, would, it wouldn't it would be able to do the connection all the way back. Yeah, yeah that's. Yeah, yeah. They stopped doing. That seems like a yeah yeah. Really they good stopped and
0: and it was also uh, based on a lot of associations. Something that mm-hmm. computers may or may not be doing good. You know, like if you know Prolog, the the programming language, like yeah, it, it basically has the uh, associations kind of uh, built in as first class function. So you type something yeah. like you know orange fruit, and then you type somewhere fruit, and it says orange. If you type orange, mm-hmm. it says fruit, right? It remembered yeah. that mapping, right? And and then you yeah. can use this associative kind of programming in, in a bunch of places, kind of building AI. Uh, but I haven't been programming prologue. I was just, it was part of one course. But you know, like the, the questions that they asked at the Yandex competition, they were also like, you know, something like, you know, who met this lady when he was uh, a student, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, I already lost the train the train of thought in this question. Yeah. So I-, I spent like, I don't know, maybe one minute just figuring out what is being asked. And yeah. then you're like decomposing this problem into multiple sub problems and you start from the first one and then barely solving it the next one. and time time is running. It's like five minutes yeah. per question, if I remember correctly. Oh wow. and uh, it was fantastic competition, you know, like it's it's like I don't think search engines are still kind of on that level. I don't think they are yet on that level so um
1: yeah <laughs> they'll probably get there it's <laughs> eventually those neural nets what they're doing with them is it's going to get there
0: yeah yeah and we
1: have those giant networks that they're now creating like nvidia re- release that mega something gpt what is it three right now or was it yeah gpt3 is the one that they're not releasing no it's going to get there I, one way I- or another so does it, it, interesting.
0: Th- does it make you excited, like, uh, to try these models in real life? Or do you think they're it makes kind me... of too far still, too far from real life? What do you think? It
1: makes me excited, and I think they're doing really well. It's just that this whole trend has kind of been going to, like, not user-friendly. No one can run any of these models. You need, like, nine A100s, like $100,000 worth of computing. Who has that? Like, other than those places that are doing that, what, GPT-3 took... I don't know how many billions and billions parameters. No one can run that unless you're like at some super big company. It's like, my opinion is, what's the point? Like you can, you can always throw more and more hardware at it and you can always get like 0.001% closer and closer. And that's kind of like this whole thing of why I like this area of research is, um, it's kind of the new thing. Like we've already kind of maxed ourselves out on neural nets, I personally believe. Unless there's some huge architecture changes that inspires some really interesting stuff. I don't see neural nets changing as much. And then I feel like we can do more with the next step of the nearest neighbor search and this approximate nearest neighbor vector similarity search. And I think that's where we can make some more new head games until we max this out. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm excited to see where it goes. It's just, I hope it's going to be something I can try myself and not need to spend $400 on Amazon for an hour's worth of calculations. Yeah. But, um,
0: so maybe somebody needs to work on compressing these models and sort of compressing the compute power they, they actually you know, <laughs> require. But
1: now the thing is now it's like everyone's interested when they say, oh yeah, we use like $40 million worth of compute power. Everyone thinks that's cool. That's going to get some news and people are going to be interested in it. Everyone's when it's bigger, but there is, I don't know. I remember when I was studying all of this, there was a lot of those things in regards to sparse neural nets. And that was kind of going to be the future of compressing all this down unfortunately i haven't really kept up on it too much but uh hopefully they're they do make moves because again i don't see throwing more and more hardware as innovation compared to actually making it efficient uh yeah that's my take people are doing it, so there's there's reason to do it
0: yeah for sure yeah. it's like uh, i guess the the hope of uh, researchers is to essentially kind of emulate human brain right uh but like I think human brain has like a uh, hundred million neurons, so even more, right? I don't know like if Yeah it has a
1: bunch of neurons and then in yeah. the connections that we have is yeah. Yeah. We're not I don't think hardware wise we're gonna be close yet, unless I don't know no. I know they're doing a lot of research in this area, but um I definitely don't think the neuron or yeah, I don't know. This is the way I estimate yeah. bounce. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But like just to close on that thought also that human brain does not uh kind of use the energy of uh, a server farm it's just like yeah. a, one electric lamp or whatever <laughs> yeah even
1: less efficiency right there and if you then can fit that efficiency a couple of ki-
0: kilos and that's it right that's the device
1: <laughs> and then so we can do all the, of this yeah there is a long way that. to
0: go yeah yeah and uh, exciting and- though yeah, yeah, absolutely. But actually, uh, today I've learned from my colleague Arne Talman, I, I will make sure to also ask him to give me the, the link to this paper. The paper said that if you take a model like BERT, uh, BERT will not be able to distinguish uh, the negations. H- have you seen such research? Which, which is very amazing, like for the BERT power, not to be mm-hmm. able to distinguish negations that could be like a deal breaker in some cases. Even though Definitely. Bert is very Bert is very kind of powerful model and and probably Google is using it like for few percent of their searches. But to know that it doesn't know to distinguish be- between negate, negated or non-negated phrase, that, yeah, that, that's
1: interesting. And that come brings more questions in where some languages have double negations where it matters where it doesn't matter and then uh, that's like where because like double negations in some languages are used quite a bit and they really change the meaning so that's where it's like uh-oh <laughs> what do we do there but um yeah, I wonder why I guess I, I wonder if that's something we know why or if that's something just the black box of mystery does something there
0: yeah, because if it was a rule-based system, you could claim that, hey, I have the rules here, right? And uh, I've managed to encode negations. I know what they are. And yeah. maybe you run out of all possible combinations, then you add another one and another one. But in BERT, you you don't do that, right? You mask the, the text and you train it, and that's it, right? It, Hope like, for the best. You, yeah, you didn't tell what is negation. You didn't tell... Yeah. What, and, and you can also argue, yes, we also, in our human brain, we don't have syntax, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are some studies like that. Like, for instance, when kids learn to speak the language, they don't know what is a negation, right? They don't know what is a syntactic structure or pronoun or whatever. They just mm-hmm. speak, right? Um, and so we probably don't use syntax in our brain either. Like, we use some, you know, semantic grams, I don't know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. But yeah it's an exciting topic so and if we go back to milbus so so you guys uh basically essentially uh have built support for a number of indexing algorithms as you said right and yeah can i as a user also plug in my own method
1: so we're currently working for those plans right now it's kind of blocked off or like there's a bunch of changes you have to make deeper in but we are working towards doing something along those lines where we'll have a system where you can kind of bring it in but we're also trying to add like google scan and we're working on that disc scan so like we're already like working on putting all the main ones in but right now you can't really do your own and there's also another question that comes up a bunch of the time is using your own distance metric and that's one unfortunately you kind of lose like you can do your own distance metrics metric but it would require you to only use flat because all these algorithms are kind of the reason they're efficient is because they can do some of these distance metrics. And like, let's say with quantization, like it kind of plugs and plays together nicely. When you try changing those things, everything breaks and you kind of have to revert back to doing a flat-based system. But yeah, those are the, yeah, for now, we're trying to add in all of the most famous, or not most famous, but just state-of-the-art nearest neighbor searching algorithms. And then later on, hopefully, we can kind of make this thing where you can kind of code it out yourself and kind of plug it in and make it work.
0: Mm-hmm. And and also, Milbus like pays a lot of attention to scalability. So, for instance, like horizontal scaling, you know, is probably vertical, right? So, but yeah. but for instance, one thing that I've been thinking about is that in the whole infrastructure in the pipeline of a search engine, um, one of the bottlenecks is actually getting the data, right? So the data comes in, let's say, in raw format. I don't know, news items, images, what have you. Now you need to compute the embeddings right, at, at some good good rate, right, so kind of throughput. Um, yeah. So do you guys have any work done in this area or kind of recommendations for the users?
1: So recommendations right now, or what we've been using is when we recommend is like having a server, like there's NVIDIA's Triton, there's a few other ones of inference-based servers, and you scale those up themselves. We are currently working on that, like we're calling it TOEI, and it's kind of the ML pipeline scalable that goes, that's focuses on embeddings. So like kind of doing all these things about embeddings, everything embeddings and making pipelines that can scale on multiple machines and multiple GPUs still in the work of progress. It's pretty early stage. That's what I'm currently also working on. Um, but that's going to be that, like, there are people that don't know that step and that don't know what the best process is. And we're going to be, it's also open source. So it's going to be the step a- ahead of Milvus. And then we're going to. As it progresses, kind of interlink it with Milvis, kind of make it an easy plug-and-play together. But for now, it's all about kind of scaling up. Inference servers, luckily, you can scale it pretty easily. Um, when it comes to videos where frame order matters, it's a little different. But uh, yeah, it's we kind of, for now, with Milvis are only that storage and search part. Everything above it is up to the user.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Milvus... And Mil- was... Do I only store the vectors, or can I also store the input object?
1: Right now, no input object. And um, that was kind of like, it slows things down a lot. And um, that's where sort of a a NoSQL database or something like that would work a lot better for those quick retrievals where you need exact. Um, So we, for now, store uh, ints, and then we're going to store strings. And then later on, we're going to add more and more types that we can store with it. And another thing, like we're hoping to be able to f- also index on strings, on indexes, so or on ints. So, but for now, like yeah, we don't store the objects. So in the future, when we have string, you can link the file path, because that's usually what most when you store an object, you're just storing the file path. Um, but yeah, object storage is not part currently like on on in the middle of the server. You just get a ID and vector.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then you go back and kind of link it to the other database yeah. where where those objects are stored in case you need to display them or something like that, right? So in that exactly. sense, you, you you guys are like a pure vector database. Like you store exactly. literally the vectors plus I guess the color values that they can filter on, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I think that covers a lot of use cases, isn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was also thinking, like, um, so Milbus is open source, and um, it's one of my favorite also questions. You know, like, can you speak more? Uh, why? Why Milvus is open source? What, what do you get from it being open source?
1: So I think the biggest thing right now is um, with open source, like, um, you need open source to kind of get this idea out. So vector search, if you close source it, you don't really know what's going on algorithms nothing like someplace like you don't really get the info that you want and that doesn't spark competition because if you're not in there already you need to find out everything yourself kind of do it all to just catch up and that that's of going to take a long time so with open source it kind of promotes this competition and innovation because everyone can see what we're doing you can see all these algorithms you can learn how vector search works and then people can kind of branch off and do their own sure it's competition but the only way you're going to get more users familiar with this and knowing about Vector search is just get as many people doing it and get as many people trying their own routes, get as many people building up their own systems and just kind of get it out there. That's like what we want. And I think like a, that's the biggest way you can do it. If you open source, everyone can see what's going on, learn from it and just go ahead. And then also with open source, you kind of get feedback from everyone from all different areas, from all different, like you can be a student working on a project who has some great idea, like he's not some company So if you're like, sometimes closed source, if it's not bringing money in or something like that, no one will really listen to that small student and his idea. So, um, or he might not be able to use it. So it's just about getting more perspectives on it and getting more input and kind of making it accessible to everyone and sparking that competition innovation.
0: Yeah. Actually, you brought a very interesting topic. I didn't think about it that way, to be honest. And now that you said it, it, it's very logical that it may as well be a competition between some users because they are using the same tech and they have different use cases, or maybe the same use case, but they are competing, like to get you know that last sort of percent of uh, precision out or whatever yeah. they're doing. Um, but also at the same time, you know, like when you look at open source projects, like I don't know Apache Software Foundation for that sake, you know, um, when you go there and you ask a question, you first of all you don't have to say the company that you work for, right? Or maybe yeah. you are that student that you said, and and you know you just focus on the matter, right? You, you yeah, focus exactly. on what is it you, you're asking about, and then if somebody is so curious, even if they are competing over the same thing they might kind of casually share something, right? I mean, that's what yeah. I've seen in the in the um, mailing lists a lot. Like users just, some of the other users, they just come in and say, hey, why are you doing this? You know, did you consider something else? And you're focusing so much on solving a specific problem.
1: Yeah. I think it's just, yeah, it's, it's kind of, inno- like with competition, there's innovation. And then with innovation, you get more people interested. And I think that's kind of like, What neural nets did is it started out. I don't think everyone was using it. Everyone was just using some brute force text search of keyword matching. And then as people learned about it more, there's open source systems. And I think a lot of these neural nets, if you're going to be making neural nets, you're going to be doing research on them. You're going to be posting those papers. Everyone's going to see it build on top of it and it will just explode. I think now is that's happening with these BERT models with hugging face. All of this is just exploding and more people are looking into it and it's just it's better for everything at this point. So that's kind of why we do it. There's a bit of my opinion company motto, but that's kind of yeah, the reason.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a compound effect of of multiple kind of inputs and uh yeah. And then everyone essentially has, you know, the same goal is to serve their users the best, right? And uh, or maybe solve that specific problem they're solving, maybe even for themselves. Um but yeah, I mean that's, that's very interesting. And, and, and how do you, like, do, so basically you have Slack, where I can go and, and ask my question. Like, how mm-hmm. do you kind of balance your time between kind of doing the actual work and helping the community?
1: So that's a hard one. Um, right now with Slack, is it's people that come to us. So because this area hasn't blown up so much, it's still manageable. I'm thinking in the future when you get to like levels of these other open source projects where they have like 20,000 people in their Slack all like posting questions. Right now it's pretty manageable and you can kind of keep on top of it. And uh, yeah, Slack, we made like a discourse. We kind of made a lot of like preliminary like areas that you could talk to us. And then uh, yeah, there's GitHub issues, all of that. But it's also, there's another aspect of like kind of splitting up the problems. Cause if you open up a Slack, people might post their technical problems there or like their something that might be worth being a GitHub issue because the people that are looking at the Slack majority of the time are more like user success style, not like full-blown R&D deep engineers. So that's where, like, that's where I think the balance comes out, where the problem is of like what belongs on Slack, what belongs on GitHub as an issue. But for now, all of it's easily solvable because it's a steady inflow that we can manage and we have enough people looking at it. But we'll see in the future, that's going to be another problem to deal with and uh, yeah. I'm interested to see how we do it. Yeah, it's
0: like well, catastrophic success,
1: right? <laughs> so exactly. It may, ha- it may
0: happen, <laughs> but hopefully, it will be manageable in your case, and so you can you can, as said, kind of cater to that community as well as actually keep solving the, and and keeping your roadmap under control because you also need to keep you know innovating in this space, right? The- yeah. Yeah, I'm exactly. glad it, it's working for you, and uh, I've been also slacking a bit, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> slacking is not the right word, but slacking with big S. Uh, so just kind of, um, um, kind of, I I saw immediately answers to my questions, and and have been like a long thread, you know, why Docker doesn't work, you know, can you try this, can you try that, and it's it's it it's also like you know, it's like a first impression you get about yeah the. the database or about an open source product like how soon you get an answer
1: yeah and we definitely try but sometimes it's also like you're working on one problem and you have another problem that's completely separate it's like it's a big system so jumping around between but then it's also okay let me find someone to answer that for you so you go internally look for someone hey can you answer this but uh hopefully it's working i think i think we're pretty quick on our responses maybe like overnight it's sometimes difficult with sleeping and everything but uh Yeah, we try to get responses whenever we can. Yeah. And it's working.
0: Some people are like in China, I guess. So like, I don't know. Yeah. It was like five hours difference with my time zone. And sometimes. With yours,
1: yeah, it's probably five. Mine's 14.
0: (laughs) That's like you you ask one question per couple of days, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It gets interesting with the technical, like very deep questions, because then I have to kind of bridge the gap of time, try to find solutions on my own to why it's going wrong. But then also... Once 5 o'clock hits, for me, I can pull in the external knowledge from the other team. But it's yeah. fun.
0: This needs to be solved with vector search. Like, uh, I don't need an exact answer, just an approximate, but faster.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we were, were working on that. We're trying to apply it to, like, a chatbot for, um, like, all the problems that you have. It's been working okay, but uh, we're working on it, trying to get more questions, kind of get build up a data set. That's the issue with everything, it's just building up that data set.
0: Yeah, absolutely, so that it will make sense for the chatbot to kind of, because chatbot wouldn't create answers, well, unless it's some generative model.
1: Yeah, GPT 3 for our questions, make a story might, out of it.
0: Yeah, but then it might be hallucinating yeah. as well. In some cases, it's okay, though, right?
1: Yeah, one out of ten is the correct answer. The other ones are all just like burn your computer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you want to have fun with you know, you don't need an exact answer. You just, okay, hey buddy, how are you doing? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, we're slowly moving to to why section, even though I didn't say all the sections, but we kind of mixed what and how together in many ways. Mm -hmm. And you you handled it really, really well. Um, you know, the why, the why question that I really like to ask. Everyone on this show is uh, kind of what motivates you to be part of vector search development today?
1: I think for me, the biggest thing I, I went over a few times is everyone's storing all this data. And like, it's so, like, it's a huge amount, at like all these companies. And then just the next step, I want to see what we can do with it. Vector search is one. Who knows? Maybe vector search might not be it. But in that chase for figuring out vector search for like perfecting it, something new might pop out and kind of ride this wave of what's next. And that's kind of like why I really like vector search right now. I get to learn about all these things. I still get to like throw my ideas into it and still kind of have them matter. Like the previous, like the wave that's passed already, it's kind of gone to the point where you really need to have this deep, deep knowledge to actually be able to innovate. You do also with vector search and all of these things, but it's a little bit more fresh, so more, if that sort of makes sense. Like I like to. I want to ride that wave of freshness and kind of the next step of dealing with these huge data amounts. Yeah, that's 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 amazing. And
0: and also, I think uh, I've read somewhere on on Twitter one of the founders of Y Combinator. Um, he said like it was an essay. He said like, um, when you are on the bleeding edge of doing something, then you you automatically become the expert in that field. And if something works for you, you know, the rest of the market will probably try to copy. If it didn't work, then probably everyone else didn't figure it out because you are the bleeding edge expert, right? You are right there. And if you will figure figure out something very interesting that will be kind of revolutionary in some way, then you will be first to possibly capture the value, right? Mm -hmm. And so... You work for that goal on one hand, as you said, it motivates you to unlock the uh, you know the, the siloed databases kind of of data unstructured and structured data. Uh, on the other hand, you said maybe it won't be vector search, maybe it will be something else because you are in that experimental mode, right?
1: Yeah, whereas you can easily quickly transition and kind of keep that knowledge, keep it going and keep it running. yeah that's pretty much for me why I'm doing this. It's been so fun really fun so far also startups i like it i like the multi-hat kind of just do it trial by <laughs> fire and just get it done
0: yeah yeah kind of uh, put the money where your mouth how do you say it in english <laughs> put the money yeah where i think your it's like put is. the money where your mouth is or yeah like you, you something actually, along those lines yeah but i mean yeah. you basically instead of just kind of blogging or saying how cool it is you actually go and try to uh, apply it to some real use case right exactly and, and 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 if I may ask you, like, do you think that something kind of tactically or strategically is missing right now in the vector search space? like maybe on the on the lines of how we explain it, or maybe there are some untapped use cases or something else that comes to your mind? I think
1: I think the big thing right now is I, I may be wrong on this one. I kind of I might be explaining it weirdly, but like having a standard. Like we don't really have a standard for any of this yet. And there's a bunch of things kind of popping up and everyone's going to be scared to move away. So like, I feel like the last search, I don't know too much about the history and like what's going on, but like everyone's a bunch of people have built up their system on that. And it's kind of been a standard for doing that text-based keyword searching and that kind of stuff. And then when we say, oh yeah, do word embedding. So it'll make everything improve, do this, do this. But it's like, there's no standard in any of it. like, we're doing vector database. Some other people doing vector search with database attached for like, everyone's kind of just doing some, like there's no big thing there that keep, people can kind of try to make it similar. So yeah, there's no standard, which I think is kind of an issue and it's gonna hurt everyone in the long run because we're there's no standard. People won't be as excited to try it out because there's too many options. Why switch? It's too much of a pain. I don't know if that kind of made sense, but that's sort of what I'm seeing as an issue right now. But, um, it'll yeah. it'll probably be solved at some point. I think it yeah. naturally that happens and um I guess explaining it you could have seen from my previous explanation of trying to explain a vector search, it was all over the place, but it it kind of gets hard to it's a it's a step, it's a jump and um yeah, not everyone will know like similarity like cosine distances like you need to be sort of involved with in machine learning, I think the best way of around that is just. Making full pipelines for people where you just put an image in, and you get your result, and then go from there. And then from there on, they can start messing around with it. But uh, in time, everyone, I think, will have that, and everyone's working for that.
0: Yeah, I think uh, what you said makes a lot of sense. And thanks for bringing up this topic, you know, standardization, uh, because. Um... On one hand, it basically points us to, to think that this field is still fragmented, right? Um, mm-hmm. I've I've blogged about it. I had six databases, and then one evening I get a comment on the blog that hey, we are the new kid on the blog. Can you add us? Yeah, that's the seventh database, right? So how many more there are? Probably yeah, tens? I don't know.
1: Oh yeah, always popping up. But it's like it's good for innovation, it's just like we're competing against ourselves, like we're competing in everything, but no one else really cares. Like, like, we can all compete against each other, but the people that are actually going to use it are going to be like, look at this mess. Why, like, why would we go into that area? Yeah. But, uh,
0: and there was actually, you know, if you know the relevancy and matching Slack, um, I don't know if you're on it. It's like a community of all search enthusiasts, mm-hmm. consultants. I think I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's, it's fantastic place. I'll also make sure to link it in the notes. And there was like one very interesting piece on like actually touching on what you just said. You know, there was like a heated discussion uh, on uh, like, how should we call it? Pre-filtering, single-stage mm-hmm. filtering, something oh, filtering. Yeah. And, you know, like when you invented that, you go to your users and you say, yeah, today we released a single-stage pre-filter, after-filter filtering. So please use it, right? And then yeah. some other company comes and says, no, we invented another one. It's called after after pre-filtering single stage with double substages, you know. I'm just making yeah. it up, obviously. No, yeah, Exa- no, I know I mean, exactly I'm, what you mean. I'm exaggerating, right? And then that's what you said, right? Eventually it will hurt the users because they will say, Oh no, 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 I have that single stage filter after filtering. I will not go and switch it to another one, right?
1: Yeah, no, exactly that. And it's just but I I think it's it's all young. I, I'm like kind of new to this whole field of how things work, but I think it's natural for these young someone like everyone's going to race to the top and see and Mm -hmm. you just got to do what you got to do but uh it's interesting how it's all going to play out if if there is going to be more communication between everyone if there's not i don't know it's yeah might be a little bit above my what i'm doing but uh we'll see future awaits with all of this
0: but i still feel like um in the end of the day you really need to focus on the users right you're oh, not, yeah. you not focusing on inventing a new term book or a new dictionary for vector search eventually it will be published by the way i'm sure there will be so yeah. many terms it will be published but like we need to work to that
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no i agree 100 percent.
0: so hey philip like it, it's been really great discussion and i was thinking like Would you like to announce something to the users uh, of Milbus, or maybe those who are not yet using Milbus, but they would like to try it out?
1: Yeah, so we have Hacktoberfest, Get Involved. And it's a pretty easy one to check out and see how our system works. And we are releasing a general release candidate. So pretty much our kind of tried and true Milbus 2.0 in the coming month.
0: Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that other system, TOEI, you said? What what is it about? And and when is it available?
1: Yeah, TOEI is a ML pipeline software kind of simplifying mainly for embeddings. And it's all about embeddings and kind of making these for you. So it's a pipeline system. Everyone can operate and um, everyone can upload their solutions if they want to, download them. And uh, yeah, still in a work in progress, but look out for it because I think it's going to help in a lot of these areas.
0: Yeah. That's super cool. Um, that sounds very exciting, you know, to kind of take this package and, and kind of plug things in and try it out for real on, on the real day. Exactly. That's fantastic. Thanks for doing this. We'll make sure to to also kind of mention this in the show notes uh, or link if, if by the time it's, it's there. Um, yeah. Awesome. Uh, thanks Philip so much uh, for your time, for going so deep with me on, on, on even philosophy behind neural networks and then, and, and sharing your ideas uh, and, and, and thoughts. Thanks so much. And uh, I hope we can make another episode at some point down the road, um, if you're open to it, uh, especially as the company matures and the product matures awesome. and you get lot more use cases. So I'm looking forward for more blog posts as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: It was a really fun discussion.
0: <laughs> thanks so much, Philip. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.